Welcome, dear listeners, to another tale of murder, scandal, and crime from Mississauga's darker side. Today's case is a crime of brute force, a brazen double homicide, a killer on the loose, village tours through a house of death, a race against the clock to catch the killer on Christmas Day. Was it the neighbor who raised the alarm? Was it the brother-in-law set to inherit? Or was it the missing farmhand no one seems to remember? These are the murders of James and Eliza Williams. From the case files of Heritage Mississauga, this is Mississauga Confidential. Sunday, December 17th, 1893, Cooksville Village. Clayton Osborne scanned the hundred acres of prime Cooksville real estate nestled under a blanket of fresh snow. He half hoped to see James Williams Cutter turning into the farm from the middle road, his wife Eliza next to him. The view disappointed him. The day before, young Clayton had found the barn doors left wide open. The Cutter and one of the horses were gone. The animals inside the barn were starving. Like a good neighbor, he gave them feed and water. Today, he was back, but the horse and rig were still missing. Clayton checked the house again, locked tight. He knocked, waited, then knocked harder. He put his ear to the door, silence except the howling wind. He went around to the lean-to in the back of the house. There was a kitchen door, also locked. His eye caught the window. The curtain was drawn on the inside, but it was worth giving the window a shot. Clayton gripped the sash and lifted. It gave just a little. He wedged his finger into the slight opening and pushed again. The window stuttered open. The shriek of wood scraping on wood seemed to echo across the barren fields. He looked around guiltily, drew a deep breath, and silently asked to be forgiven for his trespass. He pushed aside the curtain. In the dim light of the kitchen, he could just make out a figure seated in an armchair next to the dinner table. The figure was limp, head thrown back, arms dangling at its sides. A coat was draped over the head. Mr. Williams? The boy called out meekly. The figure answered with stillness and silence. In Clayton's mind, a distant, unsettling thought became an immediate, sickening realization. He backed away from the window, turned, and sprinted across the field towards home. An hour later, Clayton returned with his parents and a handful of neighbors to confirm what he'd seen through the window, but they dared not enter. Instead, they went to fetch William Moody, James's brother-in-law who'd married his sister Letitia. One of the neighbors climbed through the window and unlatched the door. Old man Moody entered the house, followed by the rest of the group. It was cold. The fire had died out hours ago. The front room had been ransacked. They drew deeper into the back rooms and found a grisly scene. Old man Williams dead in his chair. The lifeless body of his wife Eliza sprawled face down in the pantry just off the kitchen. The police were summoned. Constable Sharp of the local constabulary arrived shortly. He took statements from the assembled group. The presumed victim was James Williams, a man of 72 years old, and his wife Eliza, roughly 20 years his junior. Old man Williams owned the farm. He was an honest man with no debts and no known enemies. The Williams had moved to the farm from Michigan 15 years back. He'd paid just over $4,000 in cash. 
the Williams had been assisted by a farmhand they'd taken on a month ago. No one seemed to know the farmhand's name, and he was nowhere to be found. James and Eliza were last seen by their neighbors on Thursday morning, driving their horse and cutter into the city, as was their weekly custom. It was the last time anybody had seen them alive until their bodies were found, save the murderer. The missing horse was a tall brown colt with star-shaped blaze down its face and one white sock. It was a lively horse, hard to handle. William Moody, the brother-in-law, surmised that the colt could only be managed by someone familiar with it. The cutter was a black two-seat Democrat with red runners. Moody claimed that in recent months his relationship with the victim had become strained. Eliza had been worried that his frequent visits would ingratiate him with James and he'd get the farm after James' death. Moody spoke about a new will his brother-in-law had made, cutting Eliza out and giving all hundred acres of the Williams farm to him. Charles Osborne, young Clayton's father, had seen cutter tracks fresh and crisp in the snow. Large boot prints went twice from the front door around to the back of the house where the cutter had been hitched. The cutter tracks trailed down to the gate at the foot of the road where the boot tracks appeared again. The driver had gotten out and closed the gate behind them. After that, the sleigh tracks vanished into the scribbled obscurity of the main road. Constable Sharp left to fetch the coroner. William Moody and two brothers, the Burrells, kept watch in the death house overnight. Monday, December 18, 1893, Cooksville Village. The Williams Farm was just off the middle road, so named for its equal proximity from the major east-west thoroughfares of Lakeshore and Dundas. Today, it is a highway named for Queen Elizabeth II. The call went out to the corner of Toronto Township, Dr. Beaumont Dixie. He was laid up sick, so the constable drove north to fetch Dr. David Heggie of Brampton. The body stayed put in the Williams house from Sunday to Monday, waiting for the coroner to show. Waiting was all the dead could do. In the meantime, word of the murders had spread throughout the village. A steady stream of tawdry tourists tramped through the death house to gawk at the Black Museum and its gallery of grotesqueries. The coroner finally arrived, accompanied by Crown Attorney James McFadden. Dr. Heggie impaneled a jury of seven local men and began his inquest. In Ontario, when a suspicious death occurs, a coroner's inquest is held to answer five questions. One, who died? Two, when they died? Three, where they died? Four, how they died? And five, what they died from? Along with the coroner, the jury toured the death house. Old man Williams was still in his chair. The coroner tried to lift the coat off his head. Matted and dried blood glued it to the dead man's head. Dr. Heggie had to peel it off like a gruesome toupee. The man's head was beaten in. He'd bled so profusely, a puddle of blood formed beneath him. In the middle of the crimson pool lay a single heavy work boot. Blood caked over the sole and upper. A trail of blood led to the adjacent room where the body of Eliza Williams lay. The jury observed that the food from their dinner had been placed back into the pantry, probably by Eliza herself. That's where she had been set upon by her killer. A bloody potato pounder lay behind the pantry door, a couple of feet from the body. The jury was unanimous in their verdict. These were the Williamses. They had died in their home from severe head trauma, and this was murder by person or persons unknown. The coroner ordered a post-mortem. Constable Sharp telegraphed the Toronto police for assistance with the investigation. Detective William Greer of Provincial Police and Detective Charles Slemon of City Police arrived from Toronto to take charge of the investigation. The detectives searched the house and found two secreted stashes of cash. 
a canvas bag with $152 in cash and foreign coins at the bottom of a trunk, and another $50 in lucre cashed in the mattress. If the motive was robbery, the thieves hadn't been very thorough. The investigation focused on finding the missing horse and the mysterious hired man. Tuesday, December 19, 1893, Cooksville Village. Postmortems were conducted on the two victims by Dr. David L. Heggie, son of the coroner, and Dr. Marshall Sutton of Cooksville. Time of death? Anywhere from Thursday afternoon to early Friday morning. The cause? One-sixth of James Williams' skull had been battered in by a dozen heavy blows. A three-inch hole just above the right eye exposed his brain to the open air. The body, lying inert and lifeless in the cold farmhouse, had been bitten by frost. Eliza had a similar treatment. The whole right side of her head was driven in by a blunt object, probably the boot or the mallet-shaped potato pounder. The post-mortem report was written and autographed by the doctors. The coroner released the bodies to the mortician. The search continued for the missing horse and cutter, and the Williams farmhand, whereabouts still unknown. Wednesday, December 20th, 1893, Cooksville Village. On this day, two very different visitors arrived in Cooksville to whip the citizenry into a frenzy. At Cooksville Station, an old and frail man stepped gingerly off the morning train. He was James Williams' younger brother, Samuel. He hadn't seen his brother for 18 years, but the two corresponded regularly. When discussing James's untimely death with reporters, Samuel broke into tears. The distraught old gentleman collapsed and was taken to the Moody House to recover. Even bigger news swept through the tiny village. The Williams' missing horse and cutter had been found in Toronto, and a wire from Toronto police requested someone from Cooksville to come identify them. In the minds of nervous Cooksville residents, this meant the arrest of the missing farmhand. By noon, the rumor mill had plenty of time to churn and spread the gossip wide enough to become fact in the minds of the Cooksville residents. The clucking choir was given another jolt when that very afternoon they saw William's missing farmhand driving a sleigh through the center of the village. He parked the sleigh in front of the Revere House, where the second coroner's inquest was set to reconvene. He calmly alighted and entered the hotel. Irate Cooksville residents, convinced the murderer was cornered, quickly coalesced into a mob. They surrounded the building, trapping the farmhand inside. A constable arrived before country justice could be imposed and hustled the farmhand upstairs to the safety of a locked bedroom. In the downstairs of the Revere House, Dr. Heggie reopened his inquest. Witnesses were called to give depositions. Young Clayton Osborne described finding the bodies. William Hickey recalled seeing the Williamses departing the house by Cutter Thursday morning. William Moody spoke about his relationship with the victims and dished out some salacious backstory. Eliza was James's second wife. James left his first wife for her, and they'd run off to Michigan together before returning to Cooksville. Then came the witness the gathered jurors and audience had been waiting to see. John Corey, the Williams's former farmhand, was ushered down from his secure room upstairs to give his deposition. The tall, stoop-shouldered man was warned that he was under suspicion for the murders of his employers. He said that he'd tell them all he knew. Corey had come to Canada from England in April of 1893. He'd bounced around several farms in the area before going to work for James Williams in November. Corey claimed that he'd left the Williams's employee on December 13th on good terms. James had paid him $10 and told him to drop by at any time for more work. Corey had left for Toronto on the train that night and slept in a restaurant on York Street. On the key dates of the murder, Thursday and Friday, Corey claimed he'd bummed around the Toronto markets looking for work during the day and stayed at a restaurant near the Humber River at night. 
Corey had only just heard about the murders and his role as primary suspect the day before and immediately beat it back to Cooksville to clear his name. A juror asked Corey about visitors to the Williams farmhouse. He replied there weren't any while he was there. As to Williams' relationship with William Moody, Corey claimed that James intensely disliked his brother-in-law. When Corey left the stand, the coroner exercised a warrant to detain him in police custody. More witnesses were called. Eliza Ann McKay, the Williams' neighbor, recalled a visit from a mysterious Englishman in a navy blue peacoat on the day of the murders. The stranger inquired about the Willingses. She told him he had the wrong house and pointed him down the road. He left and she never saw him again. John D. Hickey also described a chance run-in with a good-looking Englishman in a navy peacoat in Long Branch on Thursday morning. The man was asking about James Williams. Hickey told the man Williams resided in Cooksville, not Long Branch. George Death, a neighbor of the Williamses, said a peacoat-wearing Englishman had knocked on his door looking for James Williams. The man was eager to know if James Williams was old and crippled. Doctors Heggie and Sutton submitted the findings of their postmortem. If the purpose of the inquest was to bring the Williams murders into focus, at the end of the day that picture was even more foggy with the furnishing of three different suspects. John Corey, the shady farmhand, William Moody, the greedy brother-in-law, and mysterious Mr. Peacoat, the unknown Englishman who was sniffing around the Williams farm. The inquest adjourned for the day. Same day, City of Toronto. As the inquest was happening in Cooksville, events were occurring in Toronto pertaining to the missing horse and cutter. On Saturday morning, two days after the murders, George Butcher got two unwelcome visitors to his home in Little York. The milkman got a gander of two men driving up to the house in a horse and cutter. The horse had a star-shaped blaze and one white sock. The cutter was black with red runners. Butcher recognized the younger and taller of the two men as John Edward Walker. The other man was a stranger to him. He was an Englishman with a dark mustache wearing a navy peacoat. He was about five foot six in his early twenties. Walker asked if Butcher knew anyone who would look after a horse through the rest of the winter. Butcher replied that he did not and the men drove off. Later, Walker returned alone with a horse and cutter. They'd found a buyer for the horse and he asked Butcher to keep the horse until it could be delivered to the buyer. Payment for his horse sitting services would be a side of beef. Butcher agreed and Walker left, leaving the horse and sleigh. On Monday, Walker returned. He got his horse and Butcher got his meat. The horse's buyer was W.H. Lowry of Bleecker Street, a butcher by trade. He'd taken out a classified ad in the papers, Man Seeks Horse. Answering the ad was an Englishman in a navy peacoat with a Colton toe, brown with a star-shaped blaze and one white sock. Lowry agreed to buy the animal, snout, tail, and everything in between. Mr. Peacoat's starting offer for the horse was $50, but Lowry demurred. Mr. Peacoat went down to 20 Lowry lowballed, offering 15 the buffalo robe he was wearing, and he would throw in a beef roast to boot. Mr. Peacoat accepted. Lowry would accept the delivery of the horse on Monday. The next day, Lowry's son read a description of the Williams murders and the missing horse in the paper. The description of a brown horse with a star-shaped blaze and one white sock squared with a horse they just purchased from Mr. Peacoat. They put in a call to Toronto police. At police headquarters, Lowry spotted a photo in the rogues' gallery of Mr. Peacoat, the man who'd sold him the horse. His name was Walter William McWhirl. McWhirl was well known to police. A grifter and confidence man, his symmetrical proportions and natural charm helped him weasel his way into his victims' affections before taking from them what he could. In one previous instance, his plunder was a horse and buggy for which he'd served two six-month stints 
at Toronto Central Prison for larceny. Butcher also came forward and identified John Edward Walker. Like McWarrell, Walker was a low-level lowlife. Unlike McWarrell, he wasn't half as good-looking, half as charming, or half as bright. Walker's M.O. was to be hired on as a farmhand, then abscond with his employer's possessions just after a few days' work. Descriptions of the two men went out to every police force and newspaper across Ontario. The dragnet was out for Walker and McWorrell. Thursday, December 21st, 1893, Cooksville Village. The coffins of James and Eliza Williams lay side by side outside the Middle Road farmhouse where they'd lived and died. Friends and neighbors assembled throughout the afternoon to pay their respects to them. It was also a chance to swap scuttlebutt and compare notes on the ongoing murder investigation. In spite of the naming of the two prime suspects in the newspapers, Cookville citizens looked askance at the brother-in-law, William Moody. In hushed whispers, they shared suspicions about his hunger for the Williams farm and how far he might have gone to satiate that hunger. The coffins were loaded onto hearses, and the procession made its way to St. John's Anglican Church in Dixie. Inside the small red-brick church, the black-draped coffins were a morbid juxtaposition against the red and green gaiety of the Christmas decorations. After the service, the procession continued on to Dixie Union Cemetery. The coffins were lowered into adjoining plots. As the first spades of dirt were turned in, Letitia Moody, James's sister, began to sob. My poor brother, my poor brother, the old woman wailed. Friday, December 22nd, 1893, Cooksville Village. Possession of the farm where James and Eliza were killed was given to Samuel Williams, James's brother. A thorough search of the farmhouse was made by family members. Among them, a will dated October 5th, 1893, just two months before their murders. Upon his death, James wanted the farm sold. $3,000 would go to Eliza, and the rest would go to Samuel. His possessions would be sold too, with all the money going to the Foreign Mission Fund of the Presbyterian Church of Canada. There was nothing for his sister Letitia, or her husband William Moody. The signatures of the testators and witnesses, however, had been cut out of the document. The will was worthless. Sunday, December 24th, 1893, City of Toronto. From the carriage of the afternoon train, Detective Slemon of Toronto City Police stepped onto the platform of Union Station with a cuffed John Edward Walker in tow. Their journey by rail began earlier that day in the small Ontario town of Havelock, near Peterborough. The wanted man was seen by local cops loitering around Havelock and picked up on suspicion. He fit the description of one of the two men wanted in connection with the murder of a farmer and his wife in Cooksville, and Havelock police reached out to Toronto police. Walker's statement to police painted him not as McWorrell's partner in crime, but as his unwitting stooge. If he was mixed up in the Williams murders, it was as an accessory after the fact. He'd first met McWorrell while drinking at Fitzgerald's Hotel on the night of Thursday, the 14th of December. McWorrell was looking for a buyer for a horse and cutter. They'd met up the next day, bummed around town, and had dinner at Tobin's Restaurant on York Street. McWorrell left Walker after dinner and returned after midnight. They'd bunked together that night at Tobin's. Their plan for Saturday was to find a buyer for the horse and cutter. This led the men to Little York and the door of George Butcher, an acquaintance of Walker's. In the next couple of days, Walker became McWorrell's legman, picking up the horse from Butcher and delivering it to McWorrell. He was promised a dollar for his troubles, but McWorrell stiffed him on it. Flat broke, Walker scraped together a few pennies selling papers at Union Station before riding the rails east to look for work. He'd made it as far as Havelock. 
with one half of the horse hawkers cooling his heels in lockup, the searching lens of the law focused solely on his confederate, William McQuarrell. Monday, December 25th, 1893, Scarborough Village. The Christmas revels were dying down at the home of Angus Secor. After dinner, T.H. Cleghorn, Secor's brother-in-law, settled into an easy chair next to the warm fire. The Toronto fruit merchant shook out a copy of The World. He remarked to Angus about a report on the fugitives suspected in the death of the Cooksville farmer and his wife. The story was accompanied by an illustrated likeness of William McWorrell. Angus glanced at the picture, did a double-take, then snatched the paper for a closer look. Why, that's Stableford's man, he said. Together, Cleghorn and Angus concocted a plan to collar the culprit. They would pay a Christmas visit to the Stableford farm under the pretense of hiring the man at the Secord farm, get a gander at him, call in the cops, and be hailed as heroes. When they arrived at the farm, Stableford and the hired man were in the barn tending to the animals. Secor called out to them and beckoned them outside. As Stableford and Cleghorn gabbed, Secor eyeballed the hired man for a positive ID, but the man kept to the shadows and Secor couldn't make him out. The sneaky Secor tried some subterfuge. He pretended there was something in his eye and lifted his lantern up to his face. The lantern's glow gave Cleghorn and Secor a solid visual. The hired man was indeed Willie McWhirl. The two hastily left the Stableford farm and returned to the Secor homestead. From there, they drove to a nearby inn. Secor cooled his heels there while Cleghorn hopped a trolley heading west and traveled on to police headquarters alone. Tuesday, December 26, 1893, City of Toronto. It was just after midnight and Detective William Davis was settling in at his desk. On Christmas, the police headquarters building on Court Street was staffed with a skeleton crew so more cops could be at home with their families. The silent night was broken by a man named Cleghorn demanding to see Detective Slemon, the lead dick on the Williams case. As the only detective on duty, the man got Davis instead. Cleghorn gave Davis the lowdown on McWorrell's longitude and latitude. Davis hitched a cutter and the two raced through the darkness to the Stableford farm, stopping only to pick up Angus Secord along the way. The three men left the cutter at the road and advanced on the Stableford farmhouse by foot. It was about 1 a.m. and the house was silent and still. Secor and Detective Davis posted themselves at the side door. Cleghorn covered the front. Secor rapped loudly on the door and called out to Stableford. Sounds of stirring inside the house were followed by a groggy nightgown-garbed Henry Stableford opening the door. Davis shoved his way past Stableford and into the house. He demanded to know where the hired man's room was. From his bedroom on the second floor, McWhirl was roused by the voices below. He left his bed and quietly lifted open the window. Cleghorn, the man from earlier that night, was standing below him. McWhirl's mind formed an escape plan as he frantically grabbed his work clothes. He was halfway dressed when a burly figure burst in through the bedroom door. Hello, Mac, Detective Davis greeted him. So you're here, are you? I'm arresting you for murder. Put on some clothes. Thursday, January 4th, 1894, Cooksville Village. There was a buzzing on all four of Cooksville's corners, southeast corner, Residents hustled in and out of McClellan's general store, trading the latest news on the Williams case. Northeast corner, the Cooksville house was packed with overfull crowds unable to secure a seat at the inquest. Southwest corner, an empty field was jammed with hitched wagons. Northwest corner, the Revere house, where the inquest into the murders of James and Eliza Williams continued. It was capacity seating inside the hotel's main room. Bodies were crammed into every available space on the benches. 
It wasn't the first day of the coroner's inquest, but the main event had arrived at the circus. It was the public's first glimpse of the elusive Misters McQuarrel and Walker, but if the crowd expected to hear the two prime suspects speak, they would be sorely disappointed. The inquest continued to trudge through its scheduled roster of witnesses. More witnesses were called to pin down McWhirl and Walker's movements on the two possible days of the murders. William Tobin, the proprietor of the eponymous restaurant where McWhirl frequented on the Thursday and Friday of the murders, was brought in to confirm McWhirl and Walker's comings and goings. McWhirl had arrived at the hotel on Friday morning. Tobin refuted a key part of Walker's police statement. Walker had known McWhirl months before their horse-selling adventure. Another hosteler. James Brown stated that McWhirl had made plans to stay with his family until after Christmas, but skedaddled to the Stableford farm in Scarborough when he'd read a description of himself in the paper. The inquest adjourned until Wednesday next. Wednesday, January 10, 1894, Cooksville Village. After three weeks in the deposition of dozens of witnesses, the coroner's inquest into the deaths of James and Eliza Williams wrapped up, but not before Detective Davis dropped a bomb during his deposition. He recounted his daring Boxing Day arrest, after which he took McWhirl's statement. McWhirl not only admitted to being in Cooksville on Thursday the 14th, he claimed he had visited the Williams, spoke to them, and left with the couple still alive. How did he account for being in possession of the Williams horse and cutter the next day? He had purchased them from two men at the Shoals Hotel. Who were the men? McWhirl didn't know them. It was a difficult story for anyone to swallow. And just how did McWhirl find himself on the Williams doorstep in the first place? He told Detective Davis that on the night of December 13th at the Fitzgerald's Hotel, he met a stoop-shouldered fellow Englishman who told him that a Cooksville farmer named James Williams might be looking to take on a new farmhand. That stoop-shouldered man was the Williams' former farmhand, John Corey. Had this chance meeting between two strangers been the catalyst for the murders of James and Eliza Williams? The coroner's jury gave their final verdict. The Williamses were murdered by Walter William McWhirl and John Edward Walker. George Butcher was an accessory after the fact. Walker blanched and squirmed uncomfortably in the seat. Butcher went slack-jawed. McWhirl was the only one to keep his cool. A coroner's inquest was one thing. A criminal trial was another. From here on in, the case would move from Cooksville northward for the trial itself at the Spring Assizes in Brampton. If Walker and McWhirl were going to hang for the murders of James and Eliza Williams, it would be there. Monday, March 12, 1894, Town of Brampton Before regional provincial courts were established in 1990, the assizes were seasonal circuits made by judges and other legal personnel. It was a traveling roadshow that bopped from jurisdiction to jurisdiction across Ontario, trying cases both criminal and civil. On this day, the Peel Spring Assize is opened with the season's main event, the trial of McWhirl and Walker. It was the season's only criminal case on the docket. Crown attorneys B.B. Osler and James McFadden were the prosecutors. T.C. Robinette was the mouthpiece for McWhirl, and William McKay spoke for Walker. Justice Ferguson presided. The show's opening act was the grand jury delivering true bills of indictment against McWhirl and Walker one for the murder of James Williams, and another for the murder of Eliza Williams. Tuesday, March 13, 1894, Town of Brampton For the devoted followers of the Williams case, of which there were many, the trial was deja vu all over again, a plodding rerun of the inquest and preliminary hearing. They yawned as the same witnesses were called and gave the same evidence. Their interest was only piqued when the evidence was fresh. 
They perked up with the arrival of Constable Cross of Toronto Police on the witness stand. His testimony that he'd seen McWhirl and Walker driving the stolen horse and cutter along College Street late Thursday evening had the gallery salivating. Thursday, March 15, 1894, Town of Brampton. The prosecution shifted its focus to Walker. His story of being McWhirl's stooge was taking on water. In addition to arranging the deal for the Williams horse, he'd fenced a wallet and a pistol identified as belonging to James Williams. Unlike McWhirl, however, there was no evidence to connect Walker to the murders themselves. Friday, March 16, 1894, Town of Brampton. After calling 55 witnesses who, collectively, laid a mountain of circumstantial evidence at the feet of the jury, the Crown rested. It was the defense's turn. McWhirl's lawyer, T.C. Robinette, tried to pin the time of the murders to Friday the 15th instead of the 14th, after his client had been to the Williams farm. He fixated on witness testimony that the cutter tracks found at the Williams farm were too fresh to have been made any earlier than the Friday evening. He also grilled the medical examiners, Heggie and Sutton, searching for a later time of death, but the two doctors did not budge in their belief that the Williamses had been killed on Thursday evening. In total, the defense called 15 of its own witnesses, none of whom offered evidence to directly refute the Crown's assertion that McWhirl was the murderer. Saturday, March 17, 1894, Town of Brampton. The evidence against McWhirl was circumstantial. Both Crown Attorney Osler and Justice Ferguson admitted as much in their closing remarks to the jury. Circumstantial, yet compelling. Fact. Nearly a dozen reliable witnesses placed McWhirl in Cooksville on the day of the murders, inquiring about the Williams farm. Fact. He'd been in possession of the Williams horse and cutter later that very evening. If McWhirl's story about buying the horse and cutter from two shadowy figures at the Shoals Hotel was to be believed, he had bought the very horse and cutter of the farmer who he'd seen in Cooksville and who just happened to be murdered that very day, a confluence of events that could be reasonably described as outrageous and improbable coincidence. Each piece of evidence, however circumstantial, formed a chain of events that linked McWhirl to the deaths of the Williamses. The jury deliberated for little more than an hour and found McWhirl guilty of murder. They bought Walker's story about being an unwitting accessory after the fact, and Walker walked. Ahead of his sentencing, McWhirl addressed the assembled court. In a whirling, careening, two-hour-long speech, he accused the Crown of making false claims and calling false witnesses to make false testimony. He pointed the finger at William Moody and John Corey, accusing them each of being the guilty party. He stuck to his story and proclaimed his innocence once again. The men who did that murder were cowards, he said and brutal cowards, and they deserve to be punished, but I can look any man in the face and say that McQuirrell is innocent. Though McQuirrell's emotional monologue had members of the audience swooning, Justice Ferguson was unswayed and laid down a sentence of death. McQuirrell would hang on June 1st. For T.C. Robinette, however, the battle for his client's innocence was not over and the kindling to continue the fight was burning in his pocket. It was a letter dated the day before from Adam Lind, a doctor and Toronto councilman for Ward 6. The letter stated that Lind had been contacted by a man named John Brett, who claimed to have seen McWhirl in Toronto on the evening of Thursday, December 14th, at the time when the murders had occurred. If true, McWhirl would have an alibi for the Williams murders. Unfortunately for Robinette, and more unfortunate for McWhirl, the letter had been delivered to Robinette in court that very day, 
too late to be submitted as evidence for the trial that had just ended in his client's conviction. But Robinette would use that letter to delay McWhirl's execution until October. He would then use that bored time to take his client's case to the highest office in the land. Friday, September 28, 1894, Town of Brampton. The sound of nails being driven into wood reverberated through the stone walls of Brampton Jail. The carpenters were hard at work building the hangman's scaffold in the jail's courtyard. It was the first time in the jail's history that such a construction had been undertaken. Same day, 1894, City of Ottawa. After successfully delaying his client's execution from June to October, T.C. Robinette sat down with Sir John Thompson, the Attorney General and Prime Minister of Canada. Robinette argued for a commutation of McWhirl's death sentence based on the circumstantial nature of the evidence convicting him, the absence of bloodstains on McWhirl's clothes, the lack of motive his client had for killing the Williamses, and the new evidence that supported his client's alibi. Thompson listened for an hour and a half. Afterwards, he complimented the young lawyer on his passion and eloquence on behalf of his client. Saturday, September 29, 1894, Town of Brampton. The following telegram from Ottawa came across Sheriff Robert Brody's desk. The sentence of death passed on Walter William McWhirl, commuted to life imprisonment in Kingston Penitentiary. Official letter of advice by post. Please acknowledge this immediately. Signed, L.A. Cotelier, Under Secretary of State. Sheriff Brody drafted his response and gave the order to tear down the scaffold. In his cell, McWhirl met the news with measured optimism. He told a star reporter, If I were a guilty man, I would rather hang than go to penitentiary for life, for my crime would haunt me. But as I said before, I am innocent, and I have every confidence I will not die in Kingston Penitentiary unless my life is a very short one. His words proved prophetic. Thursday, September 22, 1899, City of Kingston. The death of Walter William McWhirl came not in the shade of a palm tree on a tropical beach, not running through the shadows of a back alley, not peacefully in his bedroom surrounded by family, and not atop a hangman's scaffold. It came lying in a hospital bed in Kingston Penitentiary, laid out by an undiagnosed heart condition. To his last breath, McWhirl claimed to be innocent of the Williams murders. He was sure new evidence would be unearthed and that his exoneration was just around the corner. Maybe this was the truth. Maybe this was just one of his lies, another in a lifetime of lies. Maybe this was one lie he told so often that he believed it himself. McWhirl possessed the charisma, the intelligence, and the sheer force of will to bend the world into the vision he wanted. In another life, he might have been an artist, a politician, an architect, or an engineer. In this life, he was a criminal, and that life was at an end. And so we close the file on another tale of murder, scandal, and crime from Mississauga's darker side. Like what you heard? Keep up on the down low and click follow to subscribe. This podcast is written by Brian Ho and Nicole Mayer. Research by Brian Ho, Nicole Mayer, and Matthew Wilkinson. An adaptation of this story by Matthew Wilkinson and Louis Costa first appeared in the Heritage News. Promotional videos produced by Brian Ho, Nicole Mayer, and Ryan Parks. Mississauga Confidential is a Heritage Mississauga production. 
Heritage Mississauga is a not-for-profit organization dedicated to researching, recording, and celebrating the history of the City of Mississauga, Ontario, Canada. Your support helps create programming just like this. For more information about Heritage Mississauga and to become a member, please visit heritagemississauga.ca and follow us on YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. Until next time, dear listener, this is Mississauga Confidential, signing off.